0: Back in it, man. Back in it. Do a little baseball today. Yeah. Kind of excited.
1: Yeah. This guy played all over, I'll say that.
0: A lot of teams yeah. for this guy. He uh a lot of free agent contracts and trades, but possibly could have been a Hall of Famer think about it. Welcome, everybody, to the Sports Experience Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Dom DeTola, sitting alongside my co-host, Chris Quinn, and today we're going to get a little MLB action.
1: Yeah, we're back on the diamond. We're talking Gary Sheffield.
0: Gary Sheffield, yeah. one of the most dominant players of the 90s and early
1: 2000s. An absolutely wonderful hitter, and we're going to get into it to think maybe his career was overshadowed by some steroids. and
0: Overshadowed yeah. by some steroids, but overshadowed because i mean he was other- a guy who knew how to get on base yep this guy was one of the elite players in major league baseball throughout most of his 20 plus year career
1: yeah he has some of my favorite stats with not striking out and oh god just like putting the ball in play
0: so-, so many power hitters you know these days have just unbelievable strikeout numbers this dude had unbelievable walk numbers yep and Well, we'll get into it later as far as his Hall of Fame candidacy. But, no, he was one of the most fun players to watch ever. Yep. But Uh, uh, Gary Sheffield, Gary Antonian Sheffield, born November eighteenth, 1968, in uh, Tampa. Grew up in Belmont Heights in the Ponce de Leon projects. And uh, he lived with an uncle who was... uh, Quite the famous baseball player. Someone we've talked about on previous episodes of these podcasts. Yeah.
1: One uh, Dwight Gooden. Dwight Gooden. That's right. He was 86 Mets. And he was what? Like four or five years older? Yeah, he was about four or five years older. Mm -hmm. And I I saw something that said that when he was developing, essentially, um, Dwight taught him how to hit a fastball. And he held on to that forever because he had not not major league speed probably at that time, but he was a great pitcher, and Yeah, he got to bat against him when he was like 13.
0: Yeah, what better way to learn than uh, Dwight Gooden fastball pre-cocaine?
1: Yes, exactly. Like,
0: <laughs> all control. <laughs> but uh, developed into a great hitter, although he early on he developed uh, quite the temp, temper
1: tantrum and uh, issues with his attitude. And this kind of is something that goes with his career. He was very outspoken when he feels like some, he's being wronged. He's not going to be quiet. And something that might be a bit of a, a mark against him is that he doesn't keep stuff in the clubhouse.
0: No, he doesn't keep stuff in the clubhouse. He just kind of shares it with everybody. I mean, back in Little League, he threw a bat at his coach. Yep. Um, but he was still a successful Little League player. He was on the uh, Belmont uh, All-Stars uh Future Major League All-Star uh, Derek Bell was on that team. Oh, yeah. Ty Griffin, a Cubs number one pick. And uh, they made it all the way to the Little League World Series finals in 1980, but uh, lost, lost to the Taiwanese 4-3. to three. Yep. But uh, he actually set a doubles record in Little League World Series history that stood until 2012. So, I mean, you could see that this guy had some ability.
1: Yes, definitely. And he shows this in high school, especially when he starts to develop more physically. I, I read that. that
0: yeah, because he's kind of a rail thin kid. Yep. Like, you know, burlap sack filled with wet antlers Ooh, pretty much nice. leading into high school. But uh, freshman year makes the varsity baseball team at uh, Hillsboro High. And then uh, by his junior season, he uh, bulks up to 175 pounds. I'm about 170 pounds right now, and I wouldn't consider that bulking up. But, well, that's. Uh,
1: That's what I read was he was so rail thin early on that he really didn't have any power behind him. And once he put on this muscle in his junior year, it was like, oh, thank God. Yeah, I mean, I don't don't know how that happens as far as... But when
0: you watch him and his uh, iconic batting stance later where... He kind of has that wide stance, and then he shakes his wrist. Like, his wrist strength and just strengthen his forearm. I mean, granted, his lower half was strong to begin with, but just you can see that powerful, violent nature that he would hit a, a baseball with. He was quite the versatile player, though, in high school because he was not only a pitcher, um, much like his uh, uncle Dwight Gooden, get it kind of into the high 80s. He was also a very uh, prolific third baseman. Yeah, yeah. Um, finished with a 500 batting average, 15 homers, and uh, only 62 at-bats and was Gatorade National Player of the Year
1: in 1986. I've I've heard this stat, but I couldn't confirm it, which is perfect for this podcast. But I heard a stat that he never struck out in high school. Or, I mean, in his senior year of high school. I'd believe that. Um, No,
0: I mean, when you look at his MLB stats, i believe it. I would totally believe that, that he never struck out because his plate discipline was off the charts fantastic.
1: Exactly, exactly. And And, that led him to be fucking drafted number one. And
0: that's he wasn't drafted number one. He was drafted round one. Oh, round one. Yeah,
1: and he had said
0: previous to this, uh, if I'm not drafted in the first round, I will go and play for University of Miami stacked program. But uh, the Milwaukee Brewers can't resist. And at number six overall, they take him in the first round. Which, it's got to
1: be the best for players is the MLB draft, I feel like. Because they can get drafted, see where they get drafted, and then go play again.
0: Particularly at a high school. Yep. Especially with eligibility remaining. And when you're drafted that high, the signing bonuses are ridiculous. And you're just like, why the hell not at this point?
1: Exactly. So that's why I love the MLB draft. It's set up for the players. Pretty much, yeah. And uh, his first
0: year in short season with uh, Helena, he had oh, 365 yeah. with 71 ribbies and only 57 games. That type of run productivity is insane. And the following season, he goes to Stockton and high A and leads the league in RBIs with 103. This guy is just a run-producing magnet as far as runs,
1: run scored, RBIs, and on-base percentage. Something I thought was interesting, because I feel like everybody could see his offense in this, was they were slotting him at shortstop. and even, Which is interesting. Even in this, you know, the California League, the you know, he was struggling. Yeah, I mean, as far as an infielder, Gary
0: Sheffield has nothing to write home about. He has an arm to throw it across the diamond, but as far as fielding and throwing it accurately to first base, that's not what you're going to get.
1: And I just always thought it was so weird because shortstop is the, really the one position you don't want an error heavy player at. So, and we're going to bring it up later, but if he's struggling at this level, why wouldn't they have already moved him?
0: Well, the thing is during this era especially for somebody like Sheffield, you've never seen a player like that before. It wasn't really until the mid to late 90s where you started seeing the Alex Rodriguez's and the Nomar Garcia Perez of these guys that... And Cal Ripken was really the first of everybody, of these larger, taller guys, not these slick fielding guys who hit five home runs a season type of players. It was kind of a transitional era and you're just figuring well we put our best player at shortstop and obviously he's cleaning up at the plate so
1: It's yeah, it's interesting.
0: That's his natural at the time position so that's where we're going to play him and by the end of 87 in the minors he's the Brewers' number one prospect. And the Brewers at this time are a competitive team in the AL East. Yeah. They're not really breaking through, but they're finishing with above 500 records at this point and then in 88 between El Paso and Denver which is double and triple A mind you the Rockies don't have a team yet he hits 327 with 28 homers and 118 RBIs and at age 19 on September 3rd 1988 he makes his major league debut for the Brewers
1: yeah which is pretty awesome to think of how fast he goes through the 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 system because well shit if you can hit <laughs> exactly and that's what they keep moving him up every single time they're like okay keep going keep go-. and that's the other thing is he just keeps hitting with men in position which has to be so exciting when you see a guy coming through doing that
0: yeah you're just like this is a groundbreaking franchise player and uh, 24 games in September he hits 238 with four homers and uh, got his first major league home run off of somebody we discussed in the 95 Angels podcast at Mark Langston. Oh, yeah. Who's playing for the Mariners at that time. But uh, things go down the tubes for Gary in Milwaukee.
1: (laughs) Well, he suffers a couple of injuries.
0: Yes, and this is kind of a theme throughout his career as far as being injury prone. So you want to get into that?
1: Yeah, so he suffers some injuries, and he essentially gets demoted to third base when Bill Spires, who we were talking about before, is probably a better shortstop. Yeah. Just, it, it obviously not a better hitter, but Gary Sheffield felt like it was race-based.
0: Yeah, which I'm not sure if I understand. Don't get me wrong. As far as players, Gary Sheffield is in another stratosphere as an all-around player compared to Bill Spires. Yes. Bill Spires, however, is reliable. You can play him at second, third, and short, as he evidenced throughout his career, and you can go, okay, if Spires is playing short, the big mistake won't be made. And I don't know how much I buy into the racism thing, but it's what Milwaukee chose to do.
1: Well, and I was uh, brought this up, like nobody held on to racism longer than baseball and we really have no idea what happened in that locker room but yeah. i feel like what milwaukee felt was if that's the way you feel gary let's keep this in the locker room and let's solve it not he wasn't
0: one to keep his opinions he to just, himself yeah
1: he just immediately goes to the media and he's like they're being fucking racist and that's why i got moved to third which if you if you look at his especially his defensive stats, that was a correct move for his career.
0: It was, and he eventually moves positions again Again. later. But uh, in 89, uh, 247, five home runs, 32 RBIs. In 1990, they brought in Don Baylor, who was a former AL MVP, future uh, manager of the Rockies, to kind of help him with his hitting. He hit uh, 294 with 10 homers, and then just kept shitting on the organization in 91 he only played 50 games.
1: Yeah, yeah, cuz he got injured a bunch again.
0: Yeah, and granted while he's only well, after 91 he's only 23 years old. Yep. Milwaukee's had enough of him. Which and, is pretty quick. Yeah. And in basically he receives a rebirth of sorts uh in 92 in spring trading in Arguably the only good trade outside of Kevin Brown to Florida in 1998, the Padres ever made during my childhood. Uh, March 26, 1992, he's traded for Ricky Bonus, pitcher, Jose Valentin, uh, an infielder, outfielder, and then uh, Matt Mieske. And... I tell you what, in the old launching pad at Jack Murphy Stadium in 1992, that's where Sheffield really becomes a Major League Baseball star.
1: I was going to say, like, if you look at his Brewers numbers, you're like, yeah, this kid could be something. That first season at the Padres with everybody around him, like pretty much like securing his bat, he, it's, it's ridiculous. Well, in 92, what they
0: had um, after... Granted, I'll go into a personal aside. By this point, they had traded two of my favorite players that weren't Tony Gwynn in Roberto Alomar and John Kruk. However, through the Alomar trade, you get Tony Fernandez and power hitter Fred McGriff, who led the N. Allen home runs that year you put Sheffield in front of him and you bat him between Tony
1: Gwynn and Fred McGriff sweet Jesus in that pitcher or in that hitters park. That's what I mean. So it's, they, they would have, or in that season, him and Fred McGriff were one and two in home runs. Yeah. And then you smash Tony in there and it's just like, yeah, we're, and they were an about 500 a team. Row. They were a decent team yeah. that
0: year. And, uh, Funny story, uh, May twelfth, nineteen 1992, he actually got to face his uncle, Dwight Goodman, playing that. for the New York Mets. Yeah, I thought that was cool. But throughout the entire season, Sheffield was competing not only for the NL Batting Championship, which he did win with a three thirty average, Yep. Uh, he was competing for a Triple Crown. And Triple Crown, if you're not familiar, as we talked about on the Jimmy Fox episode, uh, go back and listen, uh, is leading the league in batting average, home runs and RBIs, and this season, I wanted to bring this up, his 33 homers, only uh, two behind teammate Fred McGriff, and then his RBIs, which were 105, were nine off the lead from uh, Darren Dalton. So, this is an incredible year. This is all of the potential everybody's been salivating over since he finished his high A season in Stockton back in 1988. So, He's a cornerstone in San Diego, you would figure, right? As far as, oh, he's going to be the franchise player. He's going to succeed Tony Gwynn. He was actually the first Padres player to win a batting title, not named Tony Gwynn. Yeah. You take away Mark Loretta in, I think, 2004. Those are the only two people to add to the eight that Gwynn had won by himself.
1: Well, I, I thought it was interesting because... Organizations like this, like the Padres, have to make these financial decisions. Don't
0: that, get into this, Chris. That,
1: that the fans have to hate. They're just like you. Don't have an extra fifty million. Get an extra fifty it's million. It's not
0: even fifty million. It's goddamn market value. How dare you say something like that to a Silver Slugger and someone who made the All Star game in San Diego that year? God damn it! Well, this is what we see: is
1: these- he led the NL in total bases. <laughs> these teams literally become feeder systems because they can't support three or four of these gigantic contracts.
0: But they're not gigantic contracts. You know how many hometown discounts Tony Gwynn took. And don't even That's, get me into that Fred McGriff trade. That was for a goddamn washing machine, the equivalent so, of a washing yes, machine. Exactly. You can look it up. It's the equivalent of a goddamn washing machine.
1: So we get to the end of his Padres career. This is what I. This is what I wanted to. Bring up was they felt like they needed to trade him. Yeah, because the front office had no
0: money and they didn't want to spend any money and break the hearts of small children living there in the San Diego area. And Uh, they
1: didn't want to lose him to free agency.
0: They didn't want to lose him to free agency, but what they got in return, I'm not a huge fan of. And this is, I'm not popular among Padres fans for saying this, but by the middle of the summer, he was hitting 295 and 10 home runs. June 24th, 1993, three days before my sixth birthday, they traded him to the Florida Marlins for a couple of relief pitchers and Trevor Hoffman. That's what you get in return? Granted, the McGriff trade was even more horrendous, but that's all you get? A guy who can save 40 games for 10 years for a team that wins 70? Go fuck yourselves, Padres!
1: It's very fucking true when you look at these trades throughout, especially this era, it's almost like they really don't understand market value of their players. No, they have no idea. They're it's just so looking weird.
0: to unload them because they know if they hold on to them past a certain day, they're going to have to pay them. And the trade value will be somehow even shittier, which makes absolutely no sense. Exactly. But,
1: and then th- that's the other thing is the, I feel like the other teams know this, too. And they're just like, yeah, we'll give you shit for them. it's such a horrible yeah fuck man
0: well he made the all-star team with florida that year because he was fucking killing it and at the end of the year florida gives him a four-year deal which makes complete and total sense because you bring a floridian home who wants to play in florida wants to be part of this team that's accumulating a shit ton of young talent that's very they're well, they, not
1: good, but they're on the cusp, and they make them the the highest paid third baseman in the league for at least you know five minutes or whatever it is. Yeah, but, however MLB goes. Yeah, but that's the thing that San Diego just wouldn't do, and this is why it's going to stab Dom right in the heart. You
0: cheap bastards!
1: Because we literally see this fucking guy take this shit organization he to a World Series. Won the batting title. He won the
0: goddamn batting title.
1: Oh, my God. It's uh, so...
0: I'm sorry, but 94 is kind of injury-plagued for him, and they move him to right field, which is was kind the... of a godsend for his career, if you want to go into that. Yes,
1: yes, definitely, because I felt like everybody realized he always struggled on defense. And then... And I don't know what it was with the Marlins. I don't know if you... Like, did they just have a better third baseman? Um... At that time,
0: uh probably not, but they saw his athletic ability and they were like, okay, well he is a cannon for an arm, that's and the... he's super athletic, and you always put your best athlete as far as throwing in the outfield, not necessarily defense, that's where the center fielder plays as far as range but you put your best athlete as far as throwing the ball into right field and Sheffield has that in spades so you have a need in right field that's where you send the guy
1: and it you, it worked out so perfectly because he and i feel like it really everything kind of clicks with the Marlins like it was clicking with San Diego. Yeah, I mean, only he's doing it on
0: defense. Yep. I mean, he's not a liability at all in right field. Exactly. in, fact, in
1: ninety-five.
0: Yep. I mean, one hundred fifty games, two ninety-five batting average, forty-three dingers, one hundred twenty-four RBIs, a four-sixteen on-base percentage, five eighty-five slugging percentage, which had him over a thousand for OPS. How the and this is where I get into the on-base thing. This guy had a masterful eye at the plate, which is One of very... The best. He's top
1: 10 still in walks yep. in MLB history. That's for a power hitter, too. Like you were saying, you will not see that nowadays. Hopefully, it will kind of change. But power hitters literally like Bo Jackson. It is the yeah, guy they, I always free think free swing, of, yeah. yes. And I mean,
0: they're. it's either a strikeout, a home run, or...
1: A flyout. A flyout or yeah. a lineout somewhere. But that's why Gary Sheffield was a great baseball player, not a great power hitter.
0: Hey, everybody. Just want to take a quick break to uh, let you know that our Sports Experience podcast is brought to you by Engel Studio here, and uh, they're here in Tucson for all your recording needs. And then the following season in 96, as they're putting more talent on this Marlins roster as far as developing it and signing free agents, he's an all-star, silver slugger, 319 batting average, 118 runs. Yep. And a lot of that reason is the walks, and I just can't stress that enough, is the walks but he had 142 to 66 walk to strikeout ratio that's over 2 to 1 that is over 2 to 1 for one of the most dangerous hitters in the National League and he also puts up over 40 homers again yep. with 42 120 or RBIs and he led the league with a 465 on base percentage led the league in OPS with over a 1, thousand 1.090 and everything is coming together in florida they're set in 97 this is like basically the five-year plan
1: yeah really entering is.
0: their fifth year of existence in 1997 you're thinking a lot of good things are going to come unfortunately he kind of struggles at the plate this year due to some injuries and the injuries always kind of spring up for him just like not necessarily career devastating injuries but stuff that'll put him on the 15-day DL every so often and it really
1: messes with especially a hitter's rhythm and you can tell he's like he's not the Gary Sheffield you've seen in the past couple of years but the
0: team around him is stacked I mean you have Moises Alou Charles Johnson Jeff Conine, Bobby Bonilla. I mean, the rest of the team around him is fantastic. Devon White in center field. I mean, this is a team which will go into is World Series caliber. And while his batting average dips to 250 and his homers dip to 21, he still has 121 walks. I mean, he's still getting on base. And they eventually go to the playoffs as the wild card because the Braves are in that midst of like something like 15 straight division titles. Yes. And uh, I know we talked about it before in the uh, Jeff Ken episode because they play the, the Giants in the NLDS and how wonky always those Giants and uh, Marlins series were in 97 and 2003. And in the NLDS, he hits 556. He hits 556. Over one of two plate appearances, he gets a hit. It's insane. Has a homer. Has an RBI. Five walks. A 714 on base percentage. Dear
1: Christ. Slugging a thousand. Can you even imagine being the opposition pitchers? You're just like, well, one of these, one of these next two are going to be hit. When you slug a, a thousand. thousand across the board, do you know what that means statistically? You're
0: basically getting a single in every single at bat that you come up. That is unfucking believable. Granted, in playoff baseball, like in you know. Granted, it's a three game series because the Marlins sweep them three to zero, but. I don't care who the hell you are at any level of baseball. You slug 1,003 straight games, pretty goddamn incredible. But then they go to the NLCS where they have to play the Braves. Oh, yes, yes. And in a series where I'll say there's some questionable umpiring in Game 5, I don't know if you've ever watched this, but apparently the strike zone is the size of the Buick as far as left to right. Um, They end up beating arguably one of the best pitching staffs of the 90s because you have john smoltz greg maddox um tom glavin and denny nagel oh yeah and they win 4-2 they win the series four games to two sheffield has a solid series 275 average a homer uh scored six runs seven walks and they make the world series as a wild card and guess what happens to gary sheffield goes off again
1: yes so they make the the world series against the indians arguably i would say if you ranked world series i
0: would probably put that twins braves one at number one yes from 91 we talked about in our kirby Puckett episode indians marlins of 97 is no lower than top five as far as excitement as far as duration of series as far as just
1: how amazing it truly was. And I'll tell you what I found awesome about this is up until when he moves to right field, he's kind of looked at as a liability on defense Yeah. in this world series. He has the play of the series on defense Yep. and you're just like, that's what's up. That's where he should have been playing since the minor leagues. Yes. Because literally his arm and like you said, his athleticism, it's just everything should be used in that you know capacity as a yeah. right fielder
0: which is funny because the padres and brewers just never figured it out no. i'll give san diego a pass because tony Gwynn is playing right field but you couldn't have moved him to left you you couldn't have done that yeah but yeah they end up winning this world series in dramatic fashion uh you know walk off hit by edgar Renteria. sheffield balls out 292 four runs one
1: double, one homer, five RBIs, eight walks. I mean, that's all you can that, ask out of was your gonna star say, player. That's like his straight-up statistics for a series that I love. He's just like, I don't know, five to ten walks, 300, maybe a home run, three, four RBIs. You're just like, yes. Like, yeah. I, I love his statistics throughout playoffs and, and really overall. He's one of my favorite for that. Oh, totally. And so 98
0: starts, but what happens in Florida is they – it's a fire sale to yep. kind of end all fire sales is Alou is gone. Starting pitcher Kevin Brown is gone to San Diego, who he leads to a pennant. I mean, Devon White goes to Arizona. Um, I don't think he was an expansion draft. He was just a free agent. They just said, fuck it. Let him walk. Damn. I mean, their entire
1: roster was essentially napalmed. Well, they were like, we just won. Let's not pay any of this contract money at, In the next five years. Yeah, and that's exactly what happened. But Sheffield stays on
0: because he's still under contract. And uh, by May of that year, he had talked to his manager, Jim Leland, who he actually probably the only manager he seemed to have a close relationship with. Yes. Like before game seven, apparently Sheffield had said, because Leland was a lifetime minor league player. He said, let's go fucking win this one for the guy that rode all those buses.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because like, that's awesome.
0: And Sheffield's in kind of a weird position because he's like, no, I'm happy playing here in Miami. I enjoy it. I don't give any sort of shit about, granted, I don't like the fact that they burn this franchise to the ground. But by that same token, I like playing for Jim Leland. And Jim Leland basically went up to him, according to Sheffield, and said, like, no, they're selling everybody off. I'm not going to be here by the end of this season. And... My, or not Miami, they're Florida still at this time Yep. May 14th, 1998 he's traded to the Dodgers and this is a very interesting and famous trade because what Florida does is trade for Mike Piazza who spends three weeks with Florida essentially before the trade deadline and Sheffield, who's an all-star is in a weird spot because he doesn't want to leave Florida and he has a no trade clause So the Marlins basically have to play some salary Tetris with him as well as the Dodgers to make this trade even go through. Sheffield's the last sticking point of it because he's like holding firm as the last guy going, no, this isn't going to happen. Yeah. And what ends up happening in this whole shit show of a trade, Mike Piazza and Todd Zio go to the Marlins, and it's Manuel Barrios, Charles Johnson, all-star and gold glove catcher for the Marlins, Bobby Benilla, yep. and fourth outfielder Jim Eisenreich, along with Sheffield, go to the Dodgers. And it doesn't matter much to Sheffield after all his demands are met and knowing Leland isn't coming back, that he ends up playing in L.A. for an extended period of time.
1: Yeah, well, I found it interesting that, and in, I say this again, that clubs let these top guys go for not nothing, because, I mean, obviously Piazza was whatever, but, like... Piazza's a Hall of Famer, but yeah. they only had him for three weeks. Exactly, yeah. for for not an assurance. You know what I mean? Like, it, yeah. it's it's such weird moves by by ball clubs, it's almost like guys don't mean anything. No, they... They don't mean shit. It's just a matter of moving the money around and whether your bookkeeper can do it correctly. The financial Tetris, that is so weird because... I mean, he's still a top, top player. I mean, he plays for the Dodgers for, what, three and a half years. So Yeah,
0: and he balls out. I mean, after he gets to L.A., his stats just improve. He hits yeah. 302 22 homers, over 80 RBIs. He has 20 steals and 95 walks.
1: I thought the steals were interesting. It's the first time since I think his rookie career or something that he had 20 steals. And then,
0: oddly enough, down the line, he has another 20 steals. Because he's, yeah.
1: a, he's a good base runner,
0: but he's not like someone you go, oh, this guy's going to be a you know a speed demon on the base paths so 99 to 2000 though is when he really starts balling out for the dodgers unfortunately the dodgers aren't very good during this era
1: but they're and brought this up they're just like burning cash on oh good players
0: they're like almost the mets of this era the dodgers i know after 98 after kevin brown balled out on the postseason for the padres because he was only on a one-year deal they traded Future All-Star for Spaceman. But granted, they won the pennant, so I'm not mad. They traded uh, Derek Lee. It was just a one-for-one deal where the Marlins were like, oh, we're shedding all this fucking payroll. Let's get something of value in return. Fuck you, Padres. But he was their only good... Uh, first round pick that signed of that era, which includes Todd Helton when he was backing up Peyton Manning at Tennessee and Troy Gloss, future All-Star for the Angels, who didn't sign because they didn't want to give money. I'm sorry to go on that angry aside, but back to Sheffield, 99-2001, to uh, 2001. two-time All-Star in those three years, 312 batting average, 113 homers. That's insane Yeah, for your right fielder. 310 RBIs, 296
1: walks in three seasons. Yes. Good Lord. Yes, and, and this is what I love about him is I feel like he had these stats for 20 years. He really did. And that's what I love about him is his plate discipline never
0: wavered. I hate to be repetitive, but like watching baseball now, you just don't see this garbage. Well, I'll tell you I what. I shouldn't even call gonna it bring garbage. it up. To play now is garbage. You don't
1: see this garbage magnificence yes. in the batter's box. We're going to bring it up uh in his retirement cuz he has some choice words, so. But during, Oh
0: yes, absolutely. But I just want to say this, of 3 years in his prime, basically his age 31 to uh 32 seasons, so 30 31 32. Yep. He has a over 1000 OPS. Good God, but can you imagine if the Dodgers
1: knew what they were doing in that era?
0: I mean, they're spending money like a drunk guy on payday at a strip club at this point. Fucking A. I wish they were doing that now. Granted, they're in third place, I believe, but uh, he didn't didn't like the Dodgers organization, though, by the end of his career. Now
1: we're doubling back to this where... Everybody in the organization feels like you should be keeping shit in, in the clubhouse. And he just literally goes to the media and he's just like, the Dodgers are garbage. They don't know how to spend money. And you're just <laughs> like, oh, this is our star. And right he was fielder. criticizing teammates. Yes. Like, I mean,
0: he just did. He was honey badger. He didn't give a shit. No, he just flat out went off. And, and the Dodgers had enough. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they basically had enough. By the end of the 2001 season, despite his incredible stats and productivity, that uh, January 15th, 2002, he is traded to the Braves for all star outfielder Brian Jordan, Odalis Perez, a pitcher, and uh,
1: Andrew Brown, a minor leaguer. Yeah, it's interesting because, like we were saying, it's almost like he couldn't find teammates and managers to really get along with longer than three years well if you Florida think of, and that's it.
0: it this is kind of a down era of Dodgers baseball because I feel like until 2004 they hadn't won a division title since 1995 oh yeah so despite all the money they're spending they're not getting anything of value but in two seasons with the Braves continues doing Gary Sheffield things yes he was an all star, silver slugger, both, all star both years, silver slugger 2003, hit 319, 208 runs, 64 homers, 216 RBIs, 158 walks, OPS a 974. But much as the Braves outside of the 95 season, him and the rest of the roster just take an absolute shit in the postseason. Yes. Both years they lose in five games. Um, of the division series uh, against the Giants and Cubs. And he was
1: one for 16 against the Giants and two for 14 against the Cubs. And this is rare for his postseason play because he normally steps up and has a good postseason. But like you said, the Braves all throughout these two years were just horrible in the postseason.
0: Yeah, they, they completely tanked. And who knows what they could have done, but... Uh, By that point, his contract has expired. And uh, December 19th of 2003, he signs a three-year, $39 million deal with the Evil Empire and the New York Yankees.
1: This, This one's when the Yankees are just pretty much snatching up any free agent that's out there. So I remember him playing for the Yankees in this era, especially because it was such a... Yankees like, uh, move yes it was such a Yankees move he's just like oh shit they got Gary Sheffield now
0: let's get this 36 year old who's still knocking it out of the park at this point point. and uh 2004 he had an incredible year possibly should have won the MVP he finished second uh to Vladimir Guerrero yeah all-star silver slugger 290 through 36 homers 121 RBIs 117 runs 30 doubles 92 walks and over a 900 OPS. And still perform well in the postseason, Unfortunately, because he hit three thirty-three with one homer and five RBIs, they are the first and only team in MLB history to lose a three to zero postseason lead in a best of seven series.
1: Yeah. Uh against the man we had just talked about, old Kurt Schilling.
0: Old Kurt Schilling. I wonder yeah. how he's doing now.
1: Yeah. Old's uh, I'm gonna be your mayor, Kurt Schilling. Oh yes. But yeah, they they run into uh, the one of the most unluckiest series, because if you think about it, the winner of that series was going to go on and win the World Series. Just those. Yeah, those I were mean, the teams. Exactly.
0: Uh, 2005 does just as well as an all star and silver slugger. But uh, 2006, that's when the injury comes. Uh, combined, he hit 293 with 40 homers. Uh, but now he's 38. And after an ALDS exit in 2006, he's pretty much expendable by the Yankees after signing that club option.
1: Well, they don't want to have his huge contract for this old man, which is such... This is the other... It's such another Yankees move where they're yeah. like... We well, he's need, 38. <laughs> we need to dump this old man on another organization. And another organization's like, all right, we'll pick him up, fuck it. And November of that year, he's traded
0: to the... Uh, tigers who had just won the uh, al pennant uh because he lost his job because he was hurt no six to uh mid-season acquisition bobby abreu oh yeah so he goes to detroit um and uh does a decent job in 2007 2008 he uh he had 44 homers combined between the two years uh, 132 rbis this is a dh now i mean in the American League is a power hitter near your 40s you're going to be a DH yep and uh he stole 22 bases though in 2007 which I brought up before which I found so interesting and then uh November 8th 2008 um he was uh what was i going to say not November 8th uh in 2007 2008 He not only hit the 249,999th home run, he hit the 250,000th home run in Um, MLB history.
1: On uh, back-to-back plate appearances. Yes, he did. It's quite an iconic moment in MLB history. And uh, he has. Yeah, he ended
0: 2008, oddly enough, I'll still remember this, with
1: 499 home runs. And then the Tigers said, you know what, we're not going to bring you back for our DH. No mas. Which I felt like was kind of messed up, but as an organization, you kind of just have to do stuff like that, so that's when he goes to the Mets. Yeah, in the spring training, 2009, signs with the Mets, Um,
0: and then on April 17th, he hits his 500th homer. Yep. Which... I think it's pretty incredible. That's a milestone for anybody, regardless of anything. And uh twenty fifth guy in MLB history to do it. And he was only the third player at the time in MLB history to hit a home run before the age of twenty and then after the age of forty. Yep. And he joined Ty Cobb and Rusty Staub and I believe Alex Rodriguez was, was the one the that, last one yeah. to do it. But uh by the end of the year, he is showing his age because he's 40. 41, yeah. 42. And then uh, didn't play in 2010. In 2011, he uh, retired from Major League Baseball. Yeah. After yeah. an absolutely stellar career, let me just say. I mean, he, anybody hitting over 500 home runs with the walk numbers he had and the batting average and the World Series and everything, that was pretty fantastic cuz he had 292, scored over 1600 runs, almost 2700 hits, 509 home runs, almost 1700 RBIs, almost 1500 walks yes. and a 393 on-base percentage. Those are Cooperstown numbers. Oh, 100%. But then we get into the post uh, you know, post-career stuff. I mean, it doesn't matter that he's a nine-time All-Star, five-time Silver Slugger, one-time World Series, and one-time batting champion. He has some issues. Not necessarily terrible, but stuff that could bar him from the Hall of Fame.
1: Which is silly when you really think about it. Yeah, I think he's a sports agent now. Yeah, he is. Yeah. yeah. Representing players. He uh, In
0: the Mitchell Report and uh, the Game of Shadows book, Wrote by Mark Fariniwada and Lance Williams. Um, There was some bookkeeping done in the old Balco case. Balco, if you're not familiar, is the uh, Barry Bond steroid scandal. And uh, not only were there alleged... uh,
1: Cycling? Cycling of his, cycling
0: schedules, but uh, documentation that he was using performance-enhancing drugs, which he claimed he unknowingly took, which I have no idea, but... The cycling evidence is pretty damning.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's tough because that's just one company's records. My only thing about the steroid use in Gary Sheffield's case is... His body never really changed. No, it never did. He was always that just south of six feet, yes. 190 to 210 pound guy. So he's not these other guys in which they just become, and I love your thing where Barry Bonds was just like, you think they went hard at steroids? Wait till I go this summer. Because That guy was a mutant. Exactly, and and that's why I feel like it. it anything, because I, I read somewhere where Gary Sheffield said when he used steroids unknowingly, he was rehabbing his knee. And a lot of people take. I mean,
0: any doctor for non you know professional athletes will give patients
1: HGH yes. and steroids. And what he said was, I didn't get more power from my knee coming back; it just came back quicker, and that's uh, and that was over. So for me, I don't think you ever use steroids in the way that we fucking vilify these guys and should vilify them. And that's why I feel like Gary Sheffield should be in Cooperstown without a doubt. Take away his pre two thousand one stats, and you can make a. Decent yeah. conversation. Exactly. I don't know if
0: it's as strong as Clemens or Bonds, but
1: but it's still, it's he still has a conversation. Yeah. Yes,
0: exactly. Um, made some interesting comments regarding the Yankees yes. uh, in a GQ article. Said uh, Joe Torre treated the black players differently.
1: Well, this is something that, and it's so hard for us on the outside, white people. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. For us on the outside to know what the clubhouse is. Is like so if this is true and i'm going to get into exactly what he said because I, I did find this really interesting if it's true i feel like these old-timey baseball managers kind of might lean into it yeah because what he said was the black players are being treated differently and i think um i forgot who's kenny lofton kenny lofton kenny, kenny lofton u of a everybody yeah. no said, he said he had said cheater, yeah
0: they were treated differently but it wasn't based on racism. It was yeah. But I loved his comment about Derek Jeter yes. though because Derek Jeter is half black, half white
1: and he they had said, "Well, what about Derek Jeter?" And he's like, "Oh, he's not all the way black." Well, he just said he's not black enough to get the kind of racism we were getting, yeah. which I it's kind of a fucked up statement but might have been true. That's the thing is we have no idea what happened in the clubhouse because this is something that he kind of Kept reiterating. Well, that was
0: the HBO Real Sports, the GQ interview. Oh, on okay. The why there's less black
1: people, than oh Latinos yeah, Latinos in baseball, and that that was he was talking shit on the Tigers on that one.
0: Yeah, because he was like, Latinos are supposedly easier to control because you can just send them right back across the island. Yeah, you know.
1: Well, it's just it's inappropriate comments. Very appropriate
0: <laughs> comments. Yeah, and then he sat out the World Baseball Classic in 2006. Said, uh, I get paid when the games are real. Yeah. Basically. Basically. Yeah. Like, I get paid when I'm contractually obligated. But, uh, yeah, Gary Sheffield, very interesting
1: career. What One, one of thing. my favorite players growing up. One last thing. I saw him recently.
0: Oh, please. Let's get
1: into this. Oh, God. I asked fucking love it. What he thought of cr- the current state of baseball. Yeah. And he torched it. Yeah, which I it, it, this is the thing I was reading about, like, what are you saying? I was just like, OK, OK, it, yeah, those first two
0: comments we talked about are very subjective.
1: Oh, they're ridiculous.
0: They're stuff that you can go. Well, that's just one man's opinion and may or may not be true there are other players like a kenny lofton who are like oh no we were treated differently but not because we were black you know stuff you can have some nuance to but what he said about the state of baseball today how he doesn't watch it anymore and how it is unwatchable were for the exact reasons i've been saying for the last five years that as a baseball fan
1: the statistical analysis essentially is killing the game.
0: It is because of the shifts and not teaching guys how to hit the other way about how guys don't take walks and are free swingers and obsessing about these Nancy pants, nerdy, intellectual, analytical things like launch angle off the bat. It's like hit them where they goddamn ain't show some plate discipline and choke up on the goddamn bat with two strikes. Sheffield didn't say this. This is my own opinion, but these are things that he alludes to. And it is unwatchable. Why do you think there are so many no hitters now? Because guys aren't up at the plate looking to put the ball in play anymore.
1: Well, literally, why Gary Sheffield was a great baseball player is getting sucked out of the game. It is and no, that's that's literally like when you hear the guy who is one of the has some one of the best plate disciplines of his era talk about guys nowadays just like nah, just like whatever, I'll strike out again.
0: But he's an analytics nerd's wet dream as far as on-base percentage. Walks, RBIs, runs, runs created, that type of shit. That's being sucked out of the game because of all these minutiae little, you know, analytical statistics that have no bearing on the game whatsoever other than to make some Star Wars nerd masturbate with a goddamn Red Sox poster in his room.
1: Did you say nerds? We're going to go out here and do some nerd bashing? Nerds! Do some nerd bashing.
0: But no, God bless you, Gary Sheffield. I hope you're in the Hall of Fame. I know you got a 40% uh, and uh, just over 40% on the last ballot. You got
1: three more chances. Put him in Cooperstown. Hey, everybody. This is just a stock message at the end of every episode. We hope you enjoyed whatever athlete and or team that that episode was about. Just want to say, give us a quick follow on all social media. We have a YouTube channel the Sports Experience Podcast. And we're on Instagram, the Dominic and myself, C Quinn Comedy. So give us a follow all around. Um, we're always recording right here at Angle Studio. Thank you all very much.